You're listening to RevOps FM with Justin Norris. You know, if there's one thing we're good at in B2B marketing, it's getting ourselves excited about whatever the latest and greatest thing is. And sometimes these are passing fads and things that just kind of fade away with time. Um, but there's another kind of idea out there that really embodies an entire go-to-market strategy. And sometimes these ideas end up defining how revenue teams do business when they really catch on, at least for a period of time. And today's guest has played a huge part in establishing not just one, but actually two of these era-defining GTM motions. First doing that with content marketing and lead generation as the CMO and co-founder at Marketo, and second with the concept of account-based marketing, which he pioneered as the CEO of Engageo, and then the CMO of Demandbase. So I am super excited to welcome John Miller to the show. John, thanks for being here. Hello, hello. Um, John, this is a special episode for me because we're kind of talking about a uh, history that I've lived through. It was a big part of my career, so excited to do that. And maybe we can just kick it off with a little bit of inside baseball on those early days at Marketo. What was that like founding that kind of era and just maybe walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, so you know, we're talking late 2005, early 2006, just to kind of ground us historically. Um, software as a service was still relatively new at the time. Um, so it was far enough along that when we were starting Marketo, we didn't have to say, ooh, it's a software as a service company. Uh, but it was still pretty early. A lot Historically, there hadn't been a successful MarTech company before Marketo kind of really came along. Um, and that, you know, MarTech's an interesting category because, you know, marketers have lots of budget to spend money, but they're also perceived as a cost center by most of the organization. Uh, and what that means is that before SaaS came along, MarTech was hard because people didn't want to put capital investment into, you know, expensive on-premise marketing software for what was perceived as a cost center. SaaS and Marketo really unlocked that because marketers really for the first time could buy software out of their program dollars. Um, you know, and that was our mission for Marketo. We said we wanted to make marketing software be as easy to buy as Google AdWords. I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Knack. You know, I love marketing automation software, but let's be honest, the email and landing page builders are usually terrible. You can't make it nice without a developer and marketers are going to find a way to break things or go off brand. You do not have time for that. So Knack is totally different. You set the guidelines and then give your users a building experience that's slick, modern, and beautiful. When they're done, everything goes to your map at the push of a button. And don't worry, it supports global teams, approval workflows. It's got your integrations. So head on over to revops.fm forward slash NAC, that's K-N-A-K, and get a special offer just for my listeners. So were you in your minds positioning yourselves against expensive on-premise software, or were there other kind of players or legacy players in the SaaS space that you uh, were in a category with in those early days? Yeah, good question. I mean, the the prior generation of on-premise was Epiphany, where I came from before Marketo, Broadbase, Kana. And the reality is none of those tools had really made it. Um, and so 
Uh, there was the company we positioned against back in 2006, 2007, 2008 was a company called Eloqua. Uh, Eloqua started in 1999, actually, but had evolved onto a software as a service model. And, you know, they had fortunately been able to sort of start to build the category even before we got there. Um, but also Eloqua was perceived as being expensive and hard to use. And so it was nice. We could, we could build Marketo and, and we basically positioned it as, hey, it's marketing automation, everything you want from Eloqua, but it's affordable and easy to use. Um, that Got positioning, it. you know, against a larger company that had, for lack of a better word, some flaws, uh, really helped us. Um, you know, kind of get things started. So they had kind of broken ground with the category and then you could come in and be like, we are a better version of that thing that you've been hearing about. Exactly. You know, and some people sort of give me credit for creating categories. Um, the reality is I don't think I've created categories. Um, I think what I've done is I've entered existing categories with perhaps a better design or, or a better solution and then use that to help unlock the category. You know, I mean, I, the classic example of doing that, obviously, I think is the iPhone, you know, which is you know, before the iPhone, there were all sorts of designs for how people should build an iPhone or build a phone. They had keyboards, they folded, they did that. And, you know, and then the iPhone came around and it was so clearly that's the right design. Now every phone looks like a black, you know, brick with a screen. Have you seen um, the Blackberry movie? Uh, I've not seen the movie, no. Well worth watching. Looks exactly that. The introduction of the BlackBerry, kind of how it took over, and then how they were just completely sideswiped by the iPhone. Yeah, sort of similar to what I tried to do with Marketo um, versus Eloqua. And as we get to it, similar to what I tried to do with Engage You also. So talking a little bit about um, specifically the marketing efforts um, during that time at Marketo, and I think like like content marketing, inbound marketing... Was this, was this pre-HubSpot kind of using that term inbound marketing and really popularizing it, or was it sort of contemporaneous with that? It was contemporaneous. Um, Marketo and HubSpot got started almost exactly the same time. Uh, and even to the point that I remember there's a very early, early, early meeting uh, where Phil Fernandez and I, my, you know, he's my Marketo co-founder, mm -hmm. met up with Brian Halligan and Darmesh from HubSpot you know, on University Ave in Palo Alto. You know, and we're a little bit talking about, hey, what are you doing? What are we doing? We keep hearing about you because it sort of seems similar, but you're on Boston and we're in California. Um, so, you know, but we ended up, I think, seeing a lot of the same trends and applying that to our go-to-market. I had, I mean, sort of funny story. Bef when I was deciding to start Marketo, my main alternative career I was considering at the time was to be a forester analyst. And I actually got a job offer to do that. Um, the reason I mentioned that is because I knew I wanted to write. You know, mm. when I was doing this company, I knew I wanted to share ideas and thought leadership. Um, and I remember uh, I, I had lunch with Sean Whiteley, who is over at Qualified now, was at Keaton at the time. And he just told me, you know, just start blogging. You know, just, just start blogging and put it out there and people will find your stuff. And I was like, okay, I'll try it. So yeah, I did start blogging at Marketo before we even wrote our first line of code. And I was blogging about things that were much bigger than just what Marketo was doing. 
I wrote a lot about how is marketing changing and what is the role of the CMO and how do CMOs earn credibility and respect. And, you know, I, I networked with other bloggers, you know, and it built a following. It built an audience such that when we actually had Marketo ready to go and build, there was, you know, and have that message of, hey, oh, oh hey, it's like Eloqua, but it's more affordable and easier to use. It was an audience ready to hear that. So drilling down into that point, um, one of the things that I remember very well from that era were the definitive guides that you would put out, which were kind of like ebooks on steroids for people that, that don't remember them, but they were really big marquee pieces of content that kind of captured a lot of information on like nurturing, lead scoring. There were a few. And and you mentioned blogging. I had forgotten that, but I really am now remembering like how present you were. A lot of CMOs exist in the background and then they have teams executing, but you were really the face of marketing at Marketo. Where did, I guess, did these definitive guys come out of your desire to write? Was there a defined strategy in going there? What led you there? Yeah, the definitive guides probably were a little later, just to put in context. I think the first one probably came out in 2009. Okay. So, you know, we had we had built our first couple products. We were kind of in market. Um, but there was a specific meeting I had with Phil, our CEO, I think where he sort of was challenging me to, to kind of create something that was even more, lack of a word, definitive, you know, out there, yeah. um, about lead nurturing. So, you know, I went and we wrote this and at the time it was like 45 pages, you know, and oh wow, it's a long, it's longer than eBooks. We call it a definitive guide. My most recent definitive guide was 220. So either you know, um, they, they've bloated over the years or I've had more to say. Um, and how do you remember um, from a marketing point of view, how those were received? Like, did you just see a, a huge flood of leads in the beginning or was it kind of a, a slow and steady um, trickle with that process? No, at the time, the incentive guides worked really well for us. Uh, you know, both just, hey, we could announce it and, and, Especially after the first one, when people sort of knew, oh, these things are pretty good. Um, we'd announce it and we'd get, we'd get a lot of, um, we'd get a lot of downloads. We also did other clever things, I think, to try to get more downloads. We'd intersperse interviews with other thought leaders throughout the guide. Um, and then we'd also have a list at the back of experts to follow. So then when we launched it, we could tag all those people and let them all know about it. You know, um, so we could have a more, you know, there was also already kind of a built-in endorsement. Um, and then we use the, um, there's lots of names for the strategy. Some people call it, you know, the, the bison because the American Indians used to use every piece of the bison. Here we like reuse and repurpose the content. So one definitive guide would also turn into, you know, a virtual event, two webinars, eight blog posts, you know, a whole bunch of social you know, infographics. Yeah, you know, infographics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just a lot of repurposing of the content. Um, and, and and from a like, um, you know, the the call it the manufacturing process was to, were you embodying in Marketo pretty much like what you were preaching on the outside in the sense of like leads would come in, they would get nurtured, they would get scored, they would ha be handed over to SDRs to be qualified. How did kind of that aspect of it work? Yeah, I mean, at the time at Marketo, we definitely were practicing what we preached. As I like to say, we were drinking our own champagne. Um, 
So it, it was exactly, it was the model that a lot of companies are using today. You know, we, the, the, the key, probably the key innovation was just because you downloaded the ebook did not make you elite. When you, if you download the ebook, you came in as what we called an inquiry. And then only if you looked like you were somebody in our ICP, the right kind of persona, the right kind of company, did we call you a prospect? In the earliest days, I had my junior mops person looking at each lead and he was deciding, you know, is this a prospect or not? And then as our technology got a little better, we were able to automate that process. Um, but a just because you're a prospect, SDRs did not call you. Um, we would then put you into a nurture and we had a scoring threshold and you only became a lead or an MQL when your score re above to reach a certain, certain goal. On average, a prospect was in our database for 330 days between when they first came in as a prospect and when they finally became an MQL. That's interesting. And did you have any data on like how many pieces of content they may have consumed during that time or like how many touch points it may have uh, taken them over that time? I mean, obviously I'm not looking for a specific yeah, answer, that, but just... Yeah. I had all that data, I don't remember remember right now. Um, but the so the other interesting no point is that 330 days was an average. However, about half the MQLs that we had each month would have come from new prospects that month. So, so you think about, you know, kind of half would come in, would sort of come in interested, you know, and they fill out a contact me form or just do a bunch, like immediately light up. And then the other half of our MQLs were ones that kind of had nurtured over time, perhaps for more than a year. Once it was an MQL, went to an SDR, they'd qualify it. Then they would go to, you know, the right ones would go to sales. Um, we had a relatively low bar for what it needed to be to be an MQL because I didn't want to have any false negatives and like not send stuff over that we should have. Yep. But then the SDRs were really strict about what they would pass over to sales because I wanted the sales reps every time they got something from their SDR to smell money, to know like, okay, this is going to be good. Did SDRs um, report to marketing or did you have a separate team, uh, a separate leader for that team? It changed over the years, but probably, you know, the earliest days of Marketo reported to sales, but relatively soon it moved to report to me and marketing. Interesting. And, um, you know, as you said, that model has been remarkably enduring. Um, I was in Marketo Consulting for uh, seven years and we were still implementing it to the day I left. They're still implementing it today. Um, but you wrote a, I was wanting to go in this direction, but then I saw you wrote an article, kind of a provocative article, um, that, that tackles this issue of, uh, you know, I helped create this model, uh, but it doesn't work anymore. And so I'm paraphrasing you, but roughly that, and, and here's what works better. So tell me, like, what were some of the issues that you saw? Do you think those are inherent to the model, or was it just, uh, you know, overuse, people taking something and using it crudely without the same specification as the people that created it? What, what kind of led to, to that place? Yeah, I think there's four main factors I'd point to. Um, so, you know, yeah, and, and, and the data behind it, I think, is something that I hear when I just go talk to other marketers and CMOs. The people listening probably feel this. You've probably heard it from your other guests. But that it just, it seems like, it, it feels like it's hard out there to create enough pipeline. You know, it's harder than it has been. Um, and there is also an anecdotal feeling of, you know, what I used to do doesn't work quite as well or doesn't work at all. 
So th- that's really what I mean. And, 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 and I, I'll point to the four reasons why. The first one is just the time we're in right now um, with the economy. You know, it's, we've, we, I think we've all seen our budgets get cut um, or many people have seen budgets get cut in the current economy. You know, as the zeitgeist has moved from growth at any cost to efficient, profitable growth, um, we've, seen, we've seen dollars go down. And a lot of companies faced layoffs, um, you know, and I think two things that have happened there. One, it's easier to cut your program dollars than people. So we sort of disproportionately cut program dollars. And then when you're cutting people, you tend to cut more junior people sometimes rather than the, your leaders. And you can end up with top heavy teams, you know, as a result. So, so collectively, that's just created, I think, a challenge in terms of uh, pipeline creation that's that's sort of specific to now. Because there's not enough people to, to execute or there's not enough budget to execute not on a, some of these specific yes. things? <laughs> there's not yeah. a budget, there's not enough junior people to execute. Um, and it's just, it's just a, t- you know, it's a tougher time, you know. Um, second, but then the other reasons are a little bit more uh, uh, enduring. Um, and you alluded to the first one, which is, I think just buyers have gotten overwhelmed and indifferent to a lot of the different tactics. Um, and we've all heard forms of this, you know, whether it's content shock or, or whatever, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's just too many ebooks, too many emails, too many phone calls. Um, and, and the buyers have gotten savvy, right? They know if they come to your site and fill out a form for an ebook that, you know, they're probably going to start getting unwanted calls and emails. Um, you know, and partly that is people who are practicing the playbook in the right way, right? As I said earlier, just because you download an ebook doesn't make you an MQL. And yet to a lot of companies, they're still defining their MQLs that way. Um, so buyers have gotten savvy. They're turn, you know, they're, they're avoiding their, you know, our websites and our forms and they're staying anonymous longer. Do you think that companies are also focusing a lot on the like the framework and the process of download ebook nurture and less on to me the whole point of the ebook wasn't just that you gave them an ebook or you gave them a nurture email it was that there was something really valuable there and i wonder if the people kept doing the same things but then a lot of the substance was almost sucked out of it till the content became very generic and non valuable anymore in some cases at least i know a lot of what hits my inbox is like that i think yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I do think there's a spectrum of content quality and, and some people are doing really good stuff and that probably is working. And yeah, you're right. There probably is a lot of mediocre stuff out there as well. I think the third reason is inherent in the model, the, tr- the traditional model that I used to preach is that your marketing should be highly measurable and tied to revenue. And... I think that has biased our investment into things where we can show more of a direct response. There's flown into content syndication or paid search or paid webinars to a lesser degree, certain kinds of events, you know, because, you know, the ones where you can more easily say, I spent this much money and we got this many people to respond. And then those people turned into these kinds of leads and, you know, et cetera. And boards have come to expect those kind of metrics. CEOs, CFOs have come to expect those kind of metrics. But as a result, there's been a systematic underinvestment 
in more traditional brand creation, brand building. Um, and, you know, that, that, that stuff's inherently harder to measure. Yeah. Um, but the problem is if you're not doing that, what ends up happening is you end up fighting over the same small fraction of the market that happens to be looking for a solution right now. Um, as opposed to creating market that will be, you know, will be looking for a solution. Uh, research, I've seen research that says probably on average, only about 5% of your ICP will be in market at any given point in time. Yeah. So long story short on this point, we've over-invested our budgets trying to go after that 5% and under-invested in kind of, you know, building a um, future market against the 95%. And there's a whole bunch of other reasons behind this, um, you know, including the desire to sort of, you know, short-term versus long-term thinking, you know, you, you name it. And then lastly, the, the fourth main flaw, which I didn't mention in the article, but I think is also true, um, is that the traditional model, the Marketo model, was over-focused on new pipeline generation. It was so bad at Marketo, to be honest, that if an existing customer responded to one of our campaigns, we literally wouldn't count it as a success, you know, because we only wanted new prospects. Um, and so, you know, as a result, you know, marketing has not been measured or incented on really important things like pipeline acceleration, improving sales efficiency, win rate, and all, as well as things like retention, um, and that all has a pretty significant impact on the business. So I guess in some ways that is a good segue to the next next phase maybe of of go to market in your career. And I remember it was it was at a, I was at Marketo Summit. This is where I remember and I remember like oh John Miller came out with a new company Engageo and the key line that seemed to, to stick in my brain was like fishing with spears. Like I don't know if it was you who coined that or you pulled that from somewhere. But you obviously timed that announcement rather well. How did you land there in ABM? Was ABM already a thing? Uh, that, like, like you said, with Elko, like a category that you could say, we're doing this, but doing it better? Or was this a thing that you net knew created? Yeah, I mean, ABM was definitely around. Um, ABM probably had been around as a concept for at least five years. Uh, it started, it had been coined by a consulting group called the ITSMA, IT Services Marketing Association. Uh, to really, you know, talk about, you know, how they were, you know, how companies, you know, but, and, and, and they were like literally focused on, you know, companies like Accenture, I would have a half billion dollar a year consulting contract with a client, you know, and I mean, clearly if you have a half billion dollar a year contract with an existing client, nothing about get them to download an ebook and become an MQL makes sense. Um, so, so that concept of ABM had been around for a while. At Marketo, one of the things that I had realized that our traditional model wasn't working for us, you know, was that we, 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 we were struggling a little bit to move up market into larger enterprises. You know, the, the whole write an ebook and like try to see who downloads it model, you know, we were sort of at the mercy of who happened to come download. Um, and so at the time, we just built what I called then it's just an outbound motion. 
where we sort of tried to find companies and people we wanted to go after and started to go after them. And yeah, it was through that internal practice at Marketo that I started using fishing with nets, don't care who responds, just care if you catch enough, versus fishing with spears kind of for the main outbound motion. Um, when I knew I wanted to leave Marketo to start another business, you know, there are lots of things on my mind. Um, you know, I wanted what something that seemed like it was an emerging idea and that it was going to get traction. It did seem that ABM was just starting to get some, some traction in the marketplace. I also knew what my long-term vision was, you know, which is ultimately, I still believe, you know, there's an opportunity to build a next generation marketing platform. And I felt like ABM was a good path to get to where I, I, I wanted to go. And if I'm totally candid, the third thing was good is that there was one company that was already in the market that was talking about ABM that had a bit of a reputation of being a little expensive. And that company was Demandbase. So at the time, I thought I could sort of, you know, all right, hey, Demandbase is starting to kind of create some demand for this idea of ABM. Let me come in with a kind of, kind of a better product and a better solution. Re recreating that play. I think Terminus was around as well, weren't they? Or there was like a it, similar to Marketo HubSpot. Uh, Terminus yeah. got started almost exactly the same time as like, the point at one point Sangram and I were like, Hey, maybe we should just like combine this thing and, you know, go, go to town together, which our boards didn't let us do, but it was, you know, very early, uh, and similar climbing. Funny how history kind of rhymes in that way over time. Um, and, and yeah, and there was the, the, the flip my funnel thing. I can't even remember whose thing that was, but I remember that was really, uh, big for yeah, a while. That was an interesting piece of uh, co-opetition. I mean, you know, I, I would say Marketo versus Elqua got nasty at times. Um, and I was pretty determined to uh, avoid that. So even when, you know, so we, so we were, we tried to be as friendly as possible with Terminus um, and, and demand base and the other ABM players, you know, including when Sangram wanted to do flip my funnel, we sponsored it. You know, we we're like, Hey, you know, let's, let's build this category together. Demand base was actually an Engageo customer for a while. You know, um, and, and that's the other thing that was going on. You know, in, in reality, ABM was earlier than marketing automation was. And so each of us were building solutions around ABM that ended up being not as competitive as you would think. That's uh, interesting. Because it was kind of so big. Maybe Did the fast forward question you didn't ask. So, so that's what, you know, let fast forward to five years later. And, you know, as the market had evolved, you know, we built something pretty interesting at Engageo, which was sort of almost like marketing automation for ABM. Demand base was still in the market with something pretty interesting, which was much more top of the funnel, you know, predictive analytics to find accounts that were in market, the ability to advertise to attract them to your website, and then the ability to identify them on your website and personalize. So in reality, there's almost no overlap between what the two companies were doing. But as the category had evolved, what had become clear is that the winning solution, you know, the iPhone of ABM, was going to combine what we did and what Demandbase did. Um, and I had a roadmap that was going to take me three years to get there. Demandbase had a roadmap that was going to take them three years to get there, you know. And then we were, you know, realized, and we had joint customers that were using both of us. So we realized, and we started having the conversations like that this combination could very well be the dominant design in the category. And that's what led me to sort of decide to merge the companies together. Just became a kind of better together sort of situation. 
And now, I mean, in my mind, you guys in Sixth Sense are kind of the Coke and Pepsi of this, uh, of this ecosystem. And it feels like in many different categories uh, where the main vendors are, are, are all sort of moving into occupying all the different feature areas to be as competitive as possible. Is that what you see as, as the future is kind of like two uh, big platforms or do you think there will continue to be challengers and point solutions that sort of emerge, maybe get bundled in, maybe become complementary? No, it's, def- it's definitely becoming more mature. Um, you know, where, where I think we have coalesced around the man base and six cents as the two primary players, even Terminus has very fallen to the wayside. Um, the, the, the dark horse would be zoom info, I think. Mm, right. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and they, they've got the resources, I think, to attempt a challenge, you know, I don't think the product is there yet, but they're certainly going to keep trying. But what that really represents is I think an evolution of ABM. Because even as Zoom Info is trying to get into ABM, demand base has gotten into data. Right. And, you know, we sell a lot of data now. We, we have 130, 150 million contacts and almost 100 million companies. And we sell technographic data and intent data. Um, and we have a bunch of customers who don't even use our software and just, bought, just use us as a data provider, which competes against Zoom Info. And so that's how this category is evolving is... It's not just about the software anymore. It's about the data. Um, and, and you'll see there, that'll cause new players to kind of, you know, enter and, and kind of blur the lines. As a quick sidebar, what's, what's driving the, the, the data demand? I mean, data's always been important, but AI in particular, what's really unlocked that because great AI needs great data. So I think ultimately when it comes to these go-to-market platforms, he or she who has the best data is going to win. So kind of riffing on that point, my perception of, of ABM has been like, it's become the thing that you need to be doing it. So from a, from a category point of view, it has become so dominant. That's like, well, you don't, you don't do ABM, some kind of uh, troglodyte or something who, uh, who doesn't know how to do market, or at least if you're, if you're selling to companies of any size, it's something that you need to at least grapple with at some point in terms of how it's actually executed. As uh, as a practitioner, as a consultant, a, it's a, it's hard. My perception says it's hard to do well, and that there aren't a ton of people doing it well. Um, now that's a much more limited perspective, I think, than you have. But I'd be curious, be curious what you see. Do you see people running with it, excelling it? I know this is a loaded question, uh, given your role to Bandbase, but is our company succeeding broadly with this model out in the marketplace? Do you think many are? Uh, and I think many struggle. Uh, I think you almost have to, I think, be a little more nuanced in the question, though. Um, and here's what I mean by that is, is I don't think ABM is a black or white thing. I think fishing with spears versus fishing with nets set it up too much as a dichotomy, when in reality, it's better thought of as a spectrum. You know, And you have, on the one end, you have Accenture selling half-billion-dollar deals, Right. And that's your true one to one, totally bespoke, you know, ABM. Um, and honestly, companies doing that are seeing wild success. Uh, and I think they would all say it's totally worth it. And they would also say it's hard to scale, you know, um, mm-hmm. but 100%, you know, seeing value and it's worth it. Then you have your one to few uh, style of ABM. That's probably appropriate for, say, your high six-figure deals, you know, half a million a year and so on. 
Um, and you know, typically a company is going to only have a couple dozen accounts that they're really targeting, kind of, kind of at that level. Uh, then you have your one to many. You know, these are your your low six figure, high five figure deals, and you might have a couple hundred of those accounts. Um, and then below that, you have what I would just call targeted demand generation, you know, which is you know maybe not pure net fishing because you have specific companies and specific ones you're going at, but you're using less personalized and broader tactics. But the reality is, you know, the the purists would say the only thing that's actually ABM is the one to one. Yeah. The, the half billion uh, deals. Yeah, I, I would say again, it's a spectrum, and it's about using the right style of go to market for the kind of business that you happen to have, and you probably are going to span one or two of those, uh, you know, in 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 your kind of personal go to market. So that's where I think you know people have fallen down with ABM is trying to say it's a binary thing that I'm tacking on to something else that I'm doing. As opposed to just, I'm going to have a go-to-market that's appropriate for my deal sizes that might involve focusing more of my time and energy on more valuable accounts because I don't have because because my more my more valuable accounts are simply worth it, you know. And I think if you think about it that way, it's it's a lot simpler. Mm -hmm. um, less and, binary, and people, less reductive. Yeah, and people are a lot more successful one to many like that's where a lot of companies are i mean a lot of companies happen to sell deals between 50 and two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year um and i think that's why we see so much discussion about abm and what would be considered the one to many and that's where you see the most use of technology um you know that that can be hard or it can be easy you know and what i mean by that is yeah you can do all sorts of things and try to create really complicated programs and one to many but the easy on-ramp where companies just happen, I think, see success is just that intersection of intent data, advertising, and sales alerting. You know, just know which accounts have intent. You know, focus, you know, you know, have different have some ads to, to your target market to try to create awareness, some other ads to the ones intent to really kind of drive engagement. You know, and then when your account, the accounts are actually in market and or you know, really engaging on your website, alert sales. You know, is that true ABN? No, probably not. But is it effective, especially in today's buying? Yes, it is. So kind of a technology assisted outbound as opposed to just dialing from the phone book or something like that. You have. Uh, and I would say prioritized outbound. Prioritized outbound. Yeah. Um. Do you think, like as a as a marketer, you know, as we've seen go to go to market motions come and go, they evolve, they blur together. Um, in terms of how you think as a CMO, do you feel that there are certain kind of truths of marketing that transcend that and that be, remain eternally relevant, so to speak, uh, whatever category, whatever type of motion you're doing? Are there certain axioms, I guess, that you live by as a marketer? I mean. I think certain act, truths in marketing, right, is understand your audience and, and, you know, make sure that you're speaking, you know, to that audience, you know, know what, they, what their needs are, what their values are, talk more about them than le and less about yourself, you know, uh, create value early, you know, before you ask for anything uh, from, from them or give value before you ask, 
would be kind of another way to say it. You know, if you try to be something for everybody, you're going to end up being something for nobody. You know, so I don't, those are some axioms yeah. that I think are personally true. And, and, and you've been a marketer selling to marketers for some time. Is that that kind of, has that given you an unfair advantage, so to speak, in terms of being able to speak your audience's language? I don't know how I could be, I don't think I necessarily could or would be successful marketing to another persona. Like, I mean, these folks who like market to IT all day long, more power to you. I just, it's, <laughs> it's not, that's, you know, I have a, I, I have a passion around, you know, marketing to marketing and sales, you know, the go-to-market function. Um, I want to uh, take the lens and focus it a little bit on, on marketing operations because um, it's kind of the backdrop to this story in a way is sort of the evolution of marketing operations as a, as a function. And I know when I, I bought my first instance in 2011, uh, December 31st, 2011, it was the last, last day of the year. Um, and I got a sweet discount for it. It was 2011 and, uh, and I wasn't like a marketing operations person. I was just a startup marketer. And I'm like, I need to automate some stuff because I don't have enough time to do everything. And, and eventually I, I really loved the tech and I really loved like, whoa, I can do all these cool workflows. You know, I'm not a developer, but I can do some amazing things. But a lot of people in the community were still like demand gen. It wasn't like I'm a marketing ops person. I use Marketo. It's like I'm a demand gen marketer and I use marketing or I use Marketo or I use whatever to, um, to help me in what I'm doing. And then somewhere along the way, you know, three or four or five, six years later, there was this thing of marketing operations. And was this was this a category in your brain in the beginning, or when did it emerge? If if not at the beginning, um, I would say marketing operations. It didn't surprise me, but it it um, as a as the whole thing around it, it kind of you know, uh, I I didn't I didn't drive it. It happened without me. Uh, it's probably the, the right way to describe it. Um, you know, I mean, so, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, we, we had a marketing ops person pretty early at Marketo. Uh, and so I sort of, you know, I saw the need of this and, and the value of it. Uh, but I would say that the fact that it's become such a discipline, you know, is, is, you know, that happened, I think, you know, very organically in the industry. Um, the other thing I would say I was probably behind the curve on is the drive towards RevOps. You know, I, I have mixed feelings on that one. I, I still think it's the right answer for most companies. And at the same time, as a CMO, I'm I'm so hesitant about giving up ops. You know, so let's, I was going to go there. Maybe I'll, I'll combine two questions in one. Because uh, one of my questions was, you know, in the beginning, so in the beginning, the backdrop to my question, is, uh, it's, it felt to me like ops was very, te- marketing ops was very tech focused, which wasn't the case with sales ops. Sales ops always had deal desk and comp plans and territory planning and other things that weren't really technology related, but it felt like marketing ops, at least in the beginning, was very technology synonymous, so that's slowly changing. And so um, I was curious on the one hand, what do you think marketing ops should be today? And then part of that answer could be, should it be part of RevOps? As a CMO, what are you looking to operations to provide to you today? Maybe the right way of putting it. Yeah. Um, well, I think the first thing we should sort of think about is separating out um, campaign ops from uh, from from marketing ops. Um, you know, the you know, like like campaign ops is, I think, the one that's sort of the most technology connected. You're, you're running your marketo. Somebody's you know, there's a smart list. 
you know, segmentation strategies, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, you know, even if you have a Redbox function, I think there's no argument that could be said that that campaign ops might continue to still exist in marketing. So back to your more specific question, what I want from, from ops, I mean, I think there's a couple of key pillars. You know, one is uh, data uh, uh, and just, you know, how did you make sure that the company has access to, you know, clean data, good data, um, that's organized properly, you know, all that kind of good stuff. Um, second is analytics. Uh, I think third is um, budget, uh, just making sure that, like, you know, we're, you know, as, as a group, we're entrusted with a certain amount of budget, you know, that we sort of, you know, use it kind of appropriately. And then I think lastly is kind of, you know, technology, uh, technology management, uh, potentially beyond kind of the, the core uh, campaign ops, if you will. The, the reason why I think um, RevOps is potentially so, makes so much sense um, is because, you know, let's think about, you know, a bunch of those pieces, right? So, you know, data, I mean, it, you know, it, it doesn't make sense that, you know, you'd have some, you know, people over in sales ops thinking about data about your accounts, but then different people thinking about data about your contacts. Right. Um, I think analytics, I mean, I've seen this, you know, when you, I, I've been in meetings where you have separate marketing ops and sales ops teams, you know, where we're sort of asking a question and different people are bringing up different dashboards that are spent to answer the same question. Right. That's what happens when you have, you know, separate, separate analytics teams in the two different ops functions. Um, even things like strategy and planning, you know, like how do you know, setting your pipeline targets and your lead targets, um, versus your sort of bookings targets and your territory planning, those shouldn't be two separate processes. You know, that should be one, um, you can make it all work, but, but, but these are some of the arguments I'm kind of coming around to on, on combination. But you, you alluded to, I think, a common concern, both from marketing leaders and from marketing ops practitioners, is that RevOps is kind of the, the sales off, ops wolf in sheep's clothing. And that if you, you go there, you end up with marketing ops reporting to maybe a CRO or sales leader that doesn't understand marketing. Right. And then, yeah, that's, that's a big fat no-no. Um, you know, I mean, like when we implemented RevOps and demand base, it rolled up to the CFO. Okay. Wow. Uh, both sales, sales gave up sales ops, marketing gave up marketing ops, you know, but yeah, rev, rev ops is not sales ops. It should not report up to sales either. You know, my favorite one that I've seen is Ricardo where they have a chief operations officer, you know, who reports to the CEO. Um, but more often than that, more often than not, I see the operations function, either reporting to the CFO or a COO. COO seems to me intuitively the most logical, and it kind of becomes more neutral, more like Switzerland, where um, not every company has a COO. Yeah. So, um, to what extent uh, today, let's say, does ops like there's there's a vision of ops where it's more we own certain things, like we're custodians of of data or of analytics, but we're very much uh, in a in a sort of client service model where we respond it's like. I'm your ops. Hey, John, tell me what you want to achieve. I'm going to help you get there. You give me your requirements. I'm going to build it for you and make sure it works well. Um, but I'm not necessarily helping you define those requirements or that strategy or defining what they should be. And then I think there's a vision of ops um, where it's more like, I'm going to work with you to help you know, be that kind of 
co-pilot, if you will, on defining that strategy, maybe challenging certain things. Hey, should we actually target this segment or, you know, that, that higher level, let's say higher, that other level of thinking. Um, do you see ops functioning in that way in your experience? Should they, is it a helpful thing or not? Um, yeah, I mean, perfect world. I mean, I think that's what all the ops organizations are aspiring to and attempting to do, right? To, to be, be a partner in strategy and planning. You know, so I, I would ask the question the other way around. If you're not doing that, why and what, what needs to happen? Yeah, those are going to be my follow-up then. What do you see as being some of the obstacles? Um, I mean, I have thoughts on it too, but I'm curious from your point of view, like what, what is maybe a good way is what, what are limiting ops teams today? What should they think about um, to help elevate well, I themselves? Do think, I do think it's harder when you have a separate marketing ops versus sales ops. You know, <clears throat> So I think having a strategic rev ops can make that a more valuable kind of strategic function. Um, the only other limitation probably just ends up being, you know, self-imposed, right? I mean, we're all running around so fast, so hard with so many to-dos on our plates, you know, that are not just like nice to haves, but are must-dos. Like sometimes for all of us, it can be hard to kind of step up and make the time to be more strategic. I, I think that that would be where my um, my guess would be as well in terms of the biggest issues. I think for so long, marketing ops has just dealt with the barrage of requests and fielding things. And when you do that for a while, you're just like, tell me, you know, give me your specs. I'll build it for you. I'll do what you need. Um, but you have very, like you said, very little time to think about, um, well, what should we actually be doing and, and feeling like you have the space to, to challenge that. Maybe the the good question to end on then perhaps would be about what's next. Do you see do you see ABM as kind of being like this is the this is sort of the right motion? We're just going to continue to evolve here. There's product led. There's near bound. There's always like another thing that's coming. Do you see GTM continuing to evolve in that way, or what? What do you kind of see coming around the corner? Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to you know that these things aren't black and white. Um, you know, and, and ultimately I think we all have a go-to-market and, you know, each company's go-to-market will sort of probably, you know, be slightly nuanced based on its customers, its average deal size. Um, I think to a degree it's uniqueness and differentiation in the marketplace, its level of product market fit, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think. You know, the biggest difference between traditional demand gen and ABM really historically was the focus on leads versus accounts. You know, I think no matter what your go-to-market is in B2B, we're going to increasingly see the conversation landing on buying groups. It's not leads, it's not accounts, it's buying groups, you know, um, you know, big, bigger than leads, smaller than accounts, mm -hmm. um, if you will. Uh, you know, I think the big disruption we're all sort of waiting to really understand is going to be what does AI bring to the table? Um, you know, and, and the reality is you have to remember AI has been around and go to market for a while. I mean, everything demand based does with predictive analytics right. and intent, uh, even our ad bidding is AI powered. Um, but the new stuff is the generative AI. Uh, you know, I, I think 
It, we will at some point see AI creating customer communication, personalized customer communication. Let me try that one again. Personalized customer communications at scale. Um, but in some ways, I don't even think that's where like, I'm less excited about that than I'm about will we see new user interfaces for the tools? You know, the interesting thing is for ops professionals, right? What happens when you don't need to know how to build a Marketo smart list and you can just type, oh, I want this in English language, you know, give me a list of all the people who've done this, not this and live in this area and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And that the AI kind of creates that for you. And then you can chat with it and say, oh, you know, reduce that by, you know, 10% by adding this filter and it does that, you know. So, so I, I think we will see an evolution on the technology side, um, perhaps driven by, by uh, different kinds of user interfaces. I agree with you. I think the things that are like efficiency plays or things that are programmatic or, you know, translating complex technical activities into uh, more verbal instructions seems tailor-made for what AI can do. For the generative part, I, I still remain skeptical that uh, a language model will create, you know, a definitive guide that has the original insight that, you know, like like it could take your definitive guide and create a new one, but could it create the first one? Will it create the novel thing that people are excited about and want to read? Yeah, it's, I don't it's hard I don't to imagine. But, 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 but will we see, you know, right now, like when you do an email blast inviting 10,000 people to a webinar and everybody gets the same email? Right. And will we see a world where, you know what, your email was maybe slightly different from mine because we're slightly different people? Hmm. You know, that I could see happening. Hmm. Based around like ver verticalization or uh, prior activity or. Yes, yes, yes. Nice, nice weather up in, uh, you know, I, you know but, I mean, maybe, maybe, but, but probably less that and more just, you know, title industry, persona, title. prior yeah. activity and history. Yeah. Well, we'll be watching. Uh, eagerly to see what happens. Uh, John, um, thank you for everything you've done. You've uh, been a big part of my career uh, in terms of uh, what you've built with Marketo and, and what it's given me. So appreciative of that and appreciative of you taking the time to speak today. It's been super interesting. Um, fun stuff to talk about. Thanks for the questions. All the best, John. See you. Hey, everyone. I want to invite you over to the RevOps FM Substack community, where you can sign up to get rough transcripts, show notes, longer form articles, and other bonus content. Just head over to revops.fm slash subscribe to get free access. I'd also love to know what you thought of the episode and to hear suggestions for topics you want to learn about. Feel free to leave a comment on Substack or send me an email at justin at revops.fm. Thanks for listening.